Hello and welcome to Accessible Theology. My name is Aaron and I'm here with Michael. And our goal is to make the study of God's word accessible to our listeners so that we and you would better love God, know truth, and live accordingly. Hello and welcome to another episode of Accessible Theology. We're so glad uh, that you have chosen to listen in to this episode today. Uh, we're doing another minor prophet major message, and our minor prophet for today is Micah. So I just want to start off with a little bit of background information before we jump into our three questions. Uh, so we know uh, pretty confidently uh, the time period in which this was taking place, in which this was written. Uh, and it's somewhere in the 750 to 680 BC. And we know that because of the kings that are listed in uh, verse 1 of chapter 1, uh, where we have uh, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah listed. Uh, and that places that uh, this book right in that time frame. Uh, and, and so that's something we can know pretty confidently. Uh, this is uh, something interesting about this book that in chapter three, verse eight, it, it's, it's speaking of the book as a lawsuit that is indicting uh, Judah and Samaria for their sins. And so God is, is calling them back. He's penance for their sins and that's what's taking place. And so that is really the purpose of this book where God is calling Judah to repent uh, and it's an interesting uh, sort of setup that we have in this book where there are 19 specific prophecies that are taking place. And uh, Michael, what uh, you, you had mentioned that these prophecies all start with the same word. Could you maybe just tell us a little bit more about uh, the specific breakdown of those 19 prophecies? Yeah, sure. So Micah is a very expertly written book, as much of the Bible is. One of the things that's really exciting as some, when you study the Bible more and more is you see that uh, oftentimes these writers were incredibly talented and skilled writers. And Micah is really a lawsuit. Uh, it's written almost as if uh, it is a lawsuit against the people of Israel for their sins, and, and it's showing that they will undergo judgment by Assyria and the Babylonians moving forward. And what's interesting, as Aaron mentioned, there's 19 prophecies, and they're broken into three separate cycles. So we see in verse in chapter 1 through uh, chapter 2, verse 13 is the first cycle. We see in, uh, starting in chapter 3, going through chapter 5, verse 15, the second cycle. And then the third cycle is uh, 6, 1 through 7, 20. And each time in each of these three cycles, it begins with the word hear or listen, we could say. And then in the middle of these three oracles, there are typically going to be seven oracles of salvation. So it starts with judgment, but then it ends in each of these cycles with a promise of restoration and salvation. Uh, there's a ton of puns throughout this book, so if you're someone who's into puns and uh, sarcastic language, Micah is for you. Uh, it's a great one there. Uh, just like Jonah, there's a lot of wit throughout this uh, prophet. And one thing that's important to note, though, is that, again, we've said this before, and it's going to keep coming up, is that there's this remnant language that keeps coming through all the judgment, and it ends with promises of 
salvation and hope and restoration after the time of exile that Israel as a whole will go into as a nation. That's what I mean when I say whole. So that's just some background information for the book as a whole, but hopefully if you've been listening for uh, the entire series so far, you know that we ask three specific questions of each of the minor prophets, and we're doing that because we think it's helpful to um, understand the flow of the book. Uh, so the first question we ask is the creedal connection question, uh, which simply stated is how does the message of this book align with Israel's creedal statement? So Michael, could you explain that a little bit for us? Yeah, the, uh, this uh, creedal connection is very strong right at the very end of Micah, which is fitting when you think about it, that God, after giving this lawsuit, so to speak, through his prophet against his people for their corruption and breaking of the covenant, that after giving this and giving signs of hope and promises of restoration, that he would end by going back to Israel's formative statement rooted in his very character. So God mm -hmm. ends this book of judgment and restoration with a reminder of who he is, because ultimately we need to know who God is as his people. Um, to, and so that what he's doing is never disconnected from who he is. So all uh, that God is uh, promising and predicting, um, both in the form of judgment and restoration, is completely in line with his character so with that in mind i want to look at micah 7 18 through 20 where god gives us a reminder of this creole statement which again is found in exodus 34 6 and 7 and i will read micah 7 18 through 20 to see how that shows up again here we read who is a god like you pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance he does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. So this is just a beautiful passage. And it, it shows us, I, I want to suggest, and this is, I don't want to get too far ahead and, and like tie all three of our questions together because we're hmm. tying two and three together, as yeah. we'll say later. But I do want to say this. What is neat to notice here is that the way that Micah puts forward this creedal connection, it's almost forward looking to how God himself will do away with the sin so that he does not just merely clear the guilty and sweep their sins under under the rug. Mm -hmm. And let me, let me say why it's important for our, uh, for especially for our listeners who might not be as familiar uh, with what I'm saying here. Um, in the creedal connection, we are told in, in verse 7 in Exodus 34, God reveals himself to Moses and he says this, he says something along, along the lines of, he will by no means clear the guilty, that, that uh, he will punish to the third and fourth generation, he says. Um, and this is part of God's character because he must be true to himself. He can by no means accept any sin in his presence. So this creates a massive problem for all of humanity. Since none of us are righteous, since all of us are fallen, how are any of us to be in a relationship with God? Well, 
in order to stay true, true to himself, we know that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he came into this earth, taking, assuming and taking on flesh, uh, becoming God the Son incarnate. And in that act, he then lives a perfect life, dies a, a sinner's death on the cross, taking the wrath of God that was reserved for all sin upon himself. So that in that act of God the, of God the Father, poured out his wrath upon God the Son in this covenantal agreement that they had. In that act, what goes down is God treats Christ as though he was the sinner, so that we, the real sinners, are able by faith to be justified in mm -hmm. Christ, mm -hmm. so that God can yeah. pass over the wrath, just like in the original Passover back in Israel, they had to cover the doorposts of their house in blood, showing that an animal was substituted, specifically a lamb was substituted for him, for them. And this is prefiguring Christ. And so what's important to note, I say a lot to say this, when it says that he does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love and that he'll have compassion on us and tread our iniquities underfoot. I love that language. That's seed of the serpent being crushed, right? Mm. Remember in Genesis 3.15, we are told that, there will be a seed of the woman who the, the, the serpent will bruise his heel, but he will crush the serpent's head. He, and part of being a seed of the serpent, which all of us are uh, and, uh, in our original state, is that we carry our iniquities with us. And Christ, by his work on the cross, crushes the penalty of our iniquities underfoot and does, and does away with Satan on the cross so that we can be reunited and reconciled to God. So I love that picture that we see here because it's also picked up even a little earlier. We're told in verse 17 uh, of chapter 7 in Micah that uh, they shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling of the things of earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord your God, and they shall be in fear of you. So there's this idea, again, the enemies of God, Assyria and Babylon, who will put Israel through the exile that they that God will ultimately punish them and what he uses is this language of that they're gonna be like a snake in other words they they will ultimately end up doing what their father Satan did and will be punished with Satan so there's a lot of imagery going on here but I think to connect the creedal statement and even do a forward look with this creedal statement we see that God's character never changes and that in the new covenant it's not like he just forgets sin now he deals with it through the personal work of Christ, and we'll get into that even more um, later, of course, in our second and third questions. I almost had to stop you there because you were starting to go into the canonical cohesion question, which, which I mean, as you said, we're already combining the second and third questions, um, and we can't just combine them all. So, uh, like we've said in our Jonah episode, not not all of these questions fit perfectly within a book and some of them even overlap a bit uh, but some of them are clear are very clear like we just saw from michael uh well michael was explaining it but micah uh the last two verses of the book connect straight back to uh israel's creedal statement and it's almost i mean almost word for word but the second and third questions that we're going to ask um aren't necessarily as clear, aren't, aren't necessarily as distinct from one another as that question is. So we're going to ask them together. So, so Michael, how does this book, how is it um, quoted or fulfilled in the New Testament? And 
how does this book then point us to Jesus? Yeah, uh, if you want to turn to Matthew, Aaron, I'll have you read where it's picked up, and I'll read the Micah side of things, because both times uh, that Micah is mentioned it's ex- explicitly in the New Testament, it comes up in Matthew. The first time it comes up, um, I'm going to read Micah 5, and uh, Aaron, if you want to turn to Matthew 2, 6. Gotcha. That's where we'll see it the first time. So let me read Micah 5, 1 through 6. We read, now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. So that, uh, Aaron, if you want to read Matthew 2, 6, and then we'll make this first connection. Yeah, so Matthew chapter 2, uh, in verse 5 even, he says, Uh, It is written by the prophet, and then he goes on in verse 6 to say, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who who will shepherd my people Israel. Yes, what we see here is a picking up of something that comes up in the often in the Old Testament and can be missed because of how we can read it wrongly many times kings in the Old Testament era would refer to themselves as shepherds. So a shepherd was not just someone who uh, was with sheep and was a lowly of a state kind of person necessarily. A lot of times there's uh, directly connected with being a shepherd, this idea of king. And we see that come up very clearly in Micah, that there's this idea of a shepherd king who will gather his flock and he will protect and provide for them. And particularly this makes sense in their context when you think about a monarch, because you have a king who has much power and then the people, um, there's there's not as much of um, a democracy going on. So the people are very dependent on this monarch in this culture. And so the shepherd language makes a lot of sense because the people are very much like sheep, entirely dependent upon this shepherd. Uh, to get by. And so that language is picked up clearly here and is pointing forward to Jesus, who, apart from him, we, his sheep, are desperate and going to die and be eaten by wolves. But if we have a good shepherd, we can dwell securely. We can go along green pastures and be at still waters, as Psalm 23 speaks of in in, uh, predicting Christ as well. So what's important to notice, though, in this canonical cohesion, why it comes up later, is how important it is that it says, I think in verse 3, it says, therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Now this is a really amazing connection that's going on here. God is saying, he's promising that he will give Israel into exile for a time until she who is in labor gives birth. And I, I would submit that I think this is referencing the Virgin Mary who brings the true Israel, as it is Jesus Christ, into the world, um, as she is, you know, the Holy Spirit overshadows, and she gives birth, um, despite being a virgin, because God is doing something incredible. He is sending his 
son, the one who is of the same nature and substance of himself, into the world to take on flesh, to do away with sin. And what's amazing then here is we see that when this son comes into the world, the rest of his brothers shall return. So what he's getting at is that after the exile, the true remnant, the true people of God will then be established. And we see in the New Covenant, we've talked about this before, so I'm, I'm not going to turn to all these texts, but we see that when it uses this brother's language, it does refer to all Israel as Romans 11, uh, 25 and 26 get at, that there, that many Jews will come to know Christ in between Christ's first and second coming. That is true, and we've seen it in history. But even more amazing, and something that we wouldn't necessarily expect, is that God brings in sheep that are not of Israel. He even brings in the Gentiles through the work of Christ. And we are, if you're, unless you are a Jew listening to us, if you're, if you're not a Jew, it means you're a Gentile, you're included in this, that God has, in Christ, acted in a salvific way and brought you into the fold as well. And that's what this prophecy is talking of, that this small clan of Bethlehem, from this ragtag people group that's constantly persecuted throughout history, from them, the, the Savior comes. That's why it says salvation is of the Jews, because it's through the Jewish people that the Son of God comes into the world wow. and fulfills all these promises. So that's the first one. The second one we see is in Micah 7, verse 6, in terms of canonical cohesion. And now I'll read that. And Aaron, if you want to turn to Matthew 10, 34 through 36, uh, you can read that once I'm done with this. In in uh, Micah 7, verse 6, we read, For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. So I'm going to, if you want to read Matthew 10, 34 through 36. Matthew 10, 34 says this, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. So here's strong words from Jesus, and they're being, and he's picking up Matthew, or I'm sorry, he's picking up Micah 7, 6. And this kind of gives us a, a, a different look into the, the person and work of Christ, does it not? I think a lot of times we think of Christ as a shepherd, and we think, gentle peaceful serene scene you know jesus petting lambs be and, and yet there's this reality that that jesus brings a sword he brings judgment and that he brings even division among families because if you have non-believers in your home that means that you are now a seed of the woman and your family is yet a seed of the serpent and those two don't get along ever and so what jesus is getting at and picking this up is that by his coming into the world, he has only heightened the dissonance between the world and his people because following Jesus means that, as he says in other passages, that if you don't hate your father or your mother or your brother or your sister, then you're not worthy of him. Now what he's getting at there is, in comparison to Jesus, our allegiance and loyalty to him ought to be so strong and so conspicuous that in comparison to that it looks like we hate everything else because we are even if your family is non-believers we're to love them and share the gospel with them um, now for some of us it might be sadly you might get to a point where you end up needing to shake the dust from your feet with them if it it might get to that point but jesus is saying here that it is to be expected 
that following him brings strife. And so to, to bring this Christological culmination together is this, to show how this text is moving. We're told that God's character will remain the same, that God will send a shepherd king into the world who will save his people. But we know that that is just the inauguration of the end. In other words, Jesus didn't just die for our sin, rise from the dead, and then take us into heaven. We still are awaiting the fullness of joy that is to come in the eternal state. And until then, we will still experience family disconnect. We'll still experience uh, frustration in this world. We'll still even experience the conflict, the eternal conflict of the seed of the serpent versus the seed of the woman. And so what we're reminded of in texts like this is that we have hope in Christ, that he has tread our iniquities underfoot, that we have the promise of the restoration, that the return from exile prefigured an even greater return to something even better than Eden, we would say. We have the return into uh, this perfect paradisical state that is yet to come. And yet we're still right now in a pain point and there and there is disconnect and frustration to be expected. And what we're called to, as Jesus says in other passages, is to count that cost and to and to make a decision to say that we consider him the treasure worth selling everything else for, even peace in our familial relations. And so these texts call us to look to the Son of God, who is our hope, who has dealt with our sin, and to see him as infinitely worthy to um, even experience family uh, disconnect and pain, and to, instead of just giving in for the sake of peace, to hold firm to the name of Christ, and know that he will actually at times bring that very division, that following Jesus doesn't always just mean peace for us right now, but that it will mean peace later because as it says in micah 5 5 there that he is our peace what that means if you think of philippians 4 is that he is paul says that he has the secret of contentment that if he has little if he's in prison whatever it may be whatever pain he may be enduring that he has found peace because he knows the god of peace and so hmm. we as christians know that if we have jesus he is our peace so that as even if the world and even if our own families are against us, that we are not resting in our circumstances, but in God himself who will see us home. Amen. And so that is the book of Micah. Um, that There's a lot of information there. Uh, we would definitely highly recommend that you go and read the entire book of Micah so that you can have better understanding. Um, but um, those are the three questions that we always ask and hope that you find this beneficial. The final thing I think that I would say uh, that I forgot to say in the intro, uh, Micah, his name means who is like Yahweh, uh, who is like God. And, and so I think as Michael is just wrapping us up there uh, from this, we learn that there is no one like God. None of, none of us are like him. Uh, who forgives sin and is faithful to his word. Uh, and so that that allows us then to have the kind of hope uh, that Michael is speaking of uh, and Micah is speaking of as well, uh, so that even in the midst of decay, uh, we have the hope of restoration in Christ alone. Uh, so uh, I think that's a good word to end on. Michael, if you have anything else to add, feel free. But um, that's the prophet Micah. Yeah, I think it's a great way to just say that who is like, I love how his name is even invoked there at the end because yeah. the question in those last three verses, he begins by saying, who is like 
Yahweh. And he, yeah. when he shows us the character, what we're left saying in breathless wonder is no one. Mm -hmm. And that is good. That is a yep. very good thing because the transcendence and holiness of Yahweh is such that it is our ultimate hope because he is true to himself. And that otherness becomes the grounds of our salvation. Amen and amen. So as always, until next time, we want to charge you to love God, know truth, and live accordingly.